Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world, and of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. This week and next, our Humankind on Public Radio podcast examines the story of Ted Kaczynski, who came to be known as the Unabomber. He was found dead in his prison cell on June 10, 2023, at age 81. In our coverage about this topic, I've always felt the main story was not the criminal spree by Ted, but the courage shown by his brother David Kaczynski, who came to the horrifying realization that his mentally ill brother had committed these crimes. And you'll hear about his dark night of the soul. Stay tuned. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. I remember finally meeting with the FBI, and after a couple of days of interviews, they had showed me a map of rural Montana and asked me to point out the place on that map where my brother lived. And I remember, you know, sort of walking to that map and kind of gingerly putting my finger down and feeling just how painful that was for me. The story of David Kaczynski, who felt compelled to turn in his brother, the Unabomber, and who now works for justice. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. It was a manhunt that started in 1978 when a package containing a bomb was found at a university parking lot in Chicago. The mysterious sender, who became known as the Unabomber, would strike 15 more times over a span of nearly 18 years. His explosives were placed at universities, on an airplane, at private homes. They would leave three dead and 16 injured in a bizarre protest against people involved in the spread of technology. Finally arrested in 1996, the Unabomber turned out to be 53-year-old Ted Kaczynski, a brilliant mathematician and troubled loner. Since he quit his job at University of California at Berkeley, um in the late 1960s, he had been living in an isolated cabin um, along the Continental Divide in Montana. The Unabomber's brother, David Kaczynski. At one point, he'd written to me with some pride that he had lived for a whole year, kept his accounts, and managed to survive on just 12 cents a day. Um, he had no running water, no electricity, obviously no telephone. Most of our communication was through the mail. 
This is the remarkable story of how David Kaczynski, a thoughtful and sensitive social worker, came to realize his eccentric brother was a serial murderer, how David made the anguished decision to turn his brother in, quite possibly leading to a death sentence, and why he now works to abolish the death penalty and improve our system of justice. This cold-blooded murder is the latest deadly development in a series of bombings codenamed Unibomb. The United States Attorney's Office, together with all of law enforcement, is committed to apprehending and bringing this criminal to justice. December 1994, Faith Hochberg, a U.S. attorney in New Jersey, following the murder-by-package bomb of an advertising executive whose firm did PR work related to an Exxon oil spill. It was the second time the Unabomber had killed. During the 90s, David Kaczynski received correspondence from his brother in Montana that seemed increasingly extreme, fanatical, and bizarre. My wife Linda had said to me, David, I think your brother's sick. You know, I didn't, I guess I didn't have her objectivity. My first reaction was, well, you know, this is the way Ted is. This is the way he thinks. And and she said, David, uh, read this letter. You know, people who are healthy do not think this way. Um, and it was at that point that we took some of his letters to a psychiatrist and uh, uh, began to explore whether there was anything we could do to try to uh, find out what was wrong, find out if we could help him intervene for his benefit in some way. Although Ted Kaczynski had largely cut himself off from his family, David still nurtured an affection for the clever older brother he had looked up to as a kid in Chicago. You know, there was seven and a half years difference between us, but kind of as I was moving into adolescence and, and Ted into young adulthood, I think there was quite a, quite a bond. Uh, we, we both loved the outdoors. Um, I felt it was kind of almost a privilege to share some of that with him because he was older and more mature and, and more intelligent. Uh, and uh, I've, I've often felt that on some deep level there is a part of Ted in me. Um, I hope it's the good part. He was very quiet. He was well-spoken. He's the only one that's ever missed me at the library. He read stuff that I certainly couldn't read because he wanted it in the original languages. And he was, I don't know, quite a nice man. Bev Coleman, a librarian in Lincoln, Montana, near the 10 feet by 12 feet cabin where Ted Kaczynski lived a solitary life in nature, read widely, wrote his angry statements about the harmful consequences of technology, and where he manufactured bombs. One of the victims was Gary Wright, co-owner of a computer store in Salt Lake City, Utah, who was injured by the Unabomber in 1987. I had been out working um, early in the morning, and I was returning back to my office building um, about 10.30 that morning. And I drove, as I drove into the parking lot, I noticed what looked to, to appear to be just some scrap wood from a, uh, a construction project. So it kind of looked somewhat like uh, two two-by-fours that were nailed together with nails sticking out of it. Um, so as I drove into the parking lot, I thought, well, I had better just go move that. Um, I exited the car, and as I went over to pick this up, um, you know, it, something just really wrong happened um, within a, 
just a, a, a short time, and I don't actually remember the device going off, but within a very short time, I was about 20 feet from where the, the device was, and I was just standing there. Um, things went into slow motion. I mean, you see it on television a lot, and it's, it's not quite accurate the way that it looks on television, but um, I watched the wires um, from the telephone and the, and the electrical into the building. Um, they were moving in slow motion in kind of a sine wave pattern, and there was debris just fought, kind of raining down and spiraling like confetti, if you will. And, and the first thought was that, that I'd been shot. I really thought that uh, someone had come around the corner and shot me with a shotgun or, or something. I don't know why that was the first thought, but it was. And, um, you know, I, I really, my mind started to race a little bit about, um, you know, I may not, I may not make it. You know, I might not, I might not live through this. I mean, they were just real clear thoughts. The bottom half of my pants was gone, and I had on a white dress shirt that day, and you know the blood started to come through the shirt, and I could see uh, at the time they looked like needles that were threaded through the cloth, if you will, and what they turned out to be was the, the wood as it exploded turned into like millions of little needles, and so they it, it fractured and just came out like that, and uh, a lot of the wood impaled itself under my my neck, so I was kind of like a porcupine, just had this wood sticking out. Um, but, you know, my, my thoughts were so clear and, um, you know, I walked into uh, my, they walked me into my office. My family worked for me at the time. And, uh, so you, you were, you were in the midst of this, you were able to walk. Yes. I, it, it was strange. I was, I was just standing up The I guess the impact as it, as it knocked me back, I must've flown through the air and landed on my feet because I, you know, I didn't really hit the ground. And I was just kind of bouncing around as if I were on a pogo stick. I, I remember that distinctly. It was kind of, I guess, the shock. Um, but I was just jumping kind of. Uh, and you're saying that you had no recollection of the actual moment of explosion. You, right. You don't remember hearing a loud noise? or No, I remember. The, the thing I remember is that I, I went to pick it up. And, and I moved it. But then it sounded like a, a, the scream of a fighter jet when it goes over, like an F-16, just a real shrill sound. And then from that point, I, I, I had a harder time hearing. It was almost like being under the water in a swimming pool or something. I could, I could hear, but not real clearly. And, uh, you know, there, there was a, a lot of um, commotion going on, obviously, people running out of buildings and things like that. Um, but, but one real distinct thought that, that has always stuck with me you know, I was in the middle of this commotion, if you will, and I couldn't hear. But inside my head, this just huge voice says, you'll be okay. And it, it was phenomenal. I mean, it just forever will stay with me. So you underwent some medical care at that point? I did. I, uh, they took about 200 pieces of shrapnel out of the uh, lower part of my body, some in the upper. Um, it severed the ulnar nerve in my left arm. Um, I, uh, they did some pretty good reconstruction on my face where there was a nail that went through my chin, through my lips. And really the only thing that saved my eyesight was I, it was a strange day in February in Utah. It was a warm 
sunny day. You don't just have them that often. And uh, I was wearing some sunglasses, some Varney sunglasses, and uh, it deflected all of those those pieces of shrapnel, or they did. Um, you know, when I looked at them later, they kind of looked like welding goggles, if you will, that have been used for a lot of years. So we're real fortunate in that regard. So you had no prior connection whatsoever with, with Ted? No, none at all. And I was actually surprised as it moved forward that, you know, I, I thought I was a fairly well-informed person, you know, read a lot of newspaper, watched a lot of news, that sort of thing. And I'd never heard of the Unabomber. So it, it did surprise me. <laughs> Quite a surprise. Yeah. Another of the Unabomber's victims was a Yale University computer specialist who lost sight in one eye, hearing in one ear, and part of his hand from the explosion. The Unabomber later sent him a bitter letter, read here by FBI agent Jim Freeman. People with advanced degrees aren't as smart as, you, as they think they are. If you'd had any brains, you would have realized that there are a lot of people out there who resent bitterly the way techno-nerds like you are changing the world, and you wouldn't have been dumb enough to open an unexpected package from an unknown source. Baffled authorities hoped that the Unabomber's writings would offer a clue to his identity, and the Justice Department recommended publication of a long, rambling manifesto against technology that Ted Kaczynski mailed to the New York Times in 1995. The hope was that someone would recognize in the manifesto a link to its author. Five months later, in an arrangement with the Times, the manifesto appeared in the Washington Post in an eight-page supplement. By then, David Kaczynski, living in Schenectady, New York, had been forming suspicions about his brother in Montana. It actually began again with my wife, Linda. Um, you know, she sat me down one day and said, Dave, don't get angry at me, but this is I'm kind of burdened with this. Did it ever occur to you? as even a remote possibility that your brother Ted might be the Unabomber. So that was before the publication in the Post? Yes. I think it was about the time there was a flurry of newspaper articles to the effect that the Unabomber had sent his manifesto to the newspapers, and the newspapers were kind of debating about whether it should be published or not. Um, and it, it had also been revealed that they thought the Unabomber had come from Chicago since that was where the first bombs had gone off and, and also that uh, he had some connection with the University of California at Berkeley since two devices had gone off there. And Linda thought, well, gee, we've got Chicago, Berkeley, and now some kind of anti-technology manifesto. And she th knew through me that my brother had a, a kind of a long-standing um, preoccupation with uh, problems associated with technology. Um, at that point, I was really dismissive. You know, I just said, you know, you don't know him. I know him. He's not capable of this. Um, but I promised to read the manifesto if it were ever published. And, uh, you know, I, I read that uh, manifesto, and I was really all set to find something in there that disqualified it as Ted's writing, and unfortunately I couldn't find anything like that. I still was not, uh, I still thought it was a, only a slim, slim chance that he'd written it. Um, I think I told Linda at that time, well, maybe there's one chance in a thousand. And, and in fact, I went to the library, read everything I could, hoping to find something that would disqualify Ted. And I looked at the sketch, and it didn't particularly look like Ted. Uh, the description was of someone three inches taller, ten years younger, different hair color. And I was sort of feeling, 
you know, this was good. You know, it wasn't a match. Um, on the other hand, I learned at that point that there was an association with Salt Lake City, and I had known that um, Ted had spent a summer working there. So that was another piece of the puzzle, the realization that I could connect him with each of the three places. Linda and I spent about the next three weeks combing through the manifesto, bunches of my brother's old letters, and it seemed like through that process, um, not that I found the you know proverbial smoking gun or anything, but um, it was almost as if I could sort of hear my brother's voice there. Um, I remember waking up on a particular morning and just feeling a kind of crushing sense of depression. My first thought was, gee, that's the worst nightmare I've ever had. But then as the cobwebs melted away a little bit, I realized it wasn't a nightmare. I was literally considering the possibility that my own brother might be a serial bomber, killer of three people, most wanted man in America. I walked to the breakfast table where Linda was already seated, eating some cornflakes, looked up at her and said, you know, hon, I think there might be a, like a 50-50 chance that Ted wrote this. And, um, you know, I, she had been kind of forced to look at this through my eyes since she didn't know him, I did. And here I am saying, this is a real credible possibility. Until he was finally apprehended, the Unabomber was mysterious. His unknown identity was frustrating to law enforcement officials and deeply disturbing to the bomber's victims who simply couldn't understand why they had been targeted for savage violence. I didn't know who it was for nine years. Gary Wright. And there was a seven-year blank period where nothing happened, and that was probably attributed to the, the sketch that my, uh, my secretary did um, when, when it was the first identification, if you will, the hooded drawing of, of the Unabomber. And that piece was, is, is a lot more complicated, um, a lot more time with the, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the emotional collapse and, and things like that that go on where you just don't know exactly what you're going to do. You wonder constantly, you know, why would anybody want to kill you and um, who could it be and, and those sorts of things and where does it go appropriately and, and how do you deal with it? Did you have a dark night of the soul in wrestling with those divided loyalties on the one hand, your brother who you loved, on the other hand, realizing that there was a serial killer at large? Yeah, um, I remember that same evening that I had told Linda that I thought there was a 50-50 chance we were just consumed with it, talking about it, is he or isn't he? You know, what does this do? What does this ask us to do? Um, I remember talking about it on into the night as we're both kind of lying there sleeplessly and I'm trying to put together my brother as I remember him with a person who might be capable of such horrible crimes. And instead I'm having memories that have a, a sort of the opposite tone. I'm remembering things from many years back, fond memories, camping trips, uh, playing softball on an informal team one year together. Um, I told Linda this one story that really had an effect on her. Um, when I was two and a half, our family had moved from a 
the back of the yards neighborhood of Chicago, out to the suburbs. And for the first, it was our first house. It was my first backyard as a little boy. And uh, I, I can recall that during that first summer, I'd push my way out through the screen door, play around in the backyard. Um, the trouble, though, was getting inside the house because at two and a half, I was so short, I couldn't reach the doorknob. But but one day, Ted had showed up, and always a very ingenious person. He'd taken a, a little spool of thread from my mom's sewing kit, a hammer and a nail from my dad's tool kit, and he nailed the spool of thread onto the wooden screen door so that it made a makeshift door handle. So I'm remembering this 42 years later, wondering if my brother's the Unabomber. I hear a little sound, and it's coming from Lyndon. Um, the room is dim, but there's like a little light shining through the shade, and I look, and I see her face is just flowing with tears. Um, and it was a very important moment for me um, because I think it, it might have been the first moment that, that Linda really saw the full human dimensions of this tragedy. In fact, the first moment that she saw Ted as a human being. Up until then, he had been, you know, the weird brother-in-law, the mentally ill guy, the hermit in Montana, now perhaps even the Unabomber. Um, but on hearing the story, I think she understood what a deep bond I had with Ted, that this was really tearing me apart. And I suppose as well that, you know, no matter what, how twisted Ted may have become, um, that nice little 10-year-old boy was part of who he was. It was part of his history. It would always be there. And this was just a, an enormous tragedy for our family. So so how do you make a decision to proceed in the direction of notifying the authorities? Yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting to, to, to note that this was a couple's decision. I think usually you think of there's got to be one heroic consciousness here that makes a decision. I think from that moment on, we were really together in this. You know, Linda had been... Um, a philosophy professor at a small college in upstate New York for 18 years. Among the courses she taught were ethics. Always a very principled person. Um, I, at this point, was working in a youth shelter for runaway and homeless kids, you know. Um, always I advise kids, you know, even, even if you don't fully trust the school principal or the police, you know, you've got to find some adult that you do trust if it's a matter of somebody's health and safety. You've got to do the right thing. You won't regret it. Well, it's easy to say that when it's someone else you're giving the advice to. Here I was confronted with a situation where this was, uh, you know, truly what defined me or these were just words I had said to make myself feel good. Um, you know, I think there was still a lot that had to be wrestled with, but I guess there was a clear sense that we couldn't just sit by and hope for the best or say that it wasn't our job. No one should expect a family member to turn in a family member. Um, that at least if we took some action, we weren't helpless. We could do something to stop the violence. And then perhaps if we communicated to the authorities that Ted was, was mentally ill, that that could save his life. Um, but I guess we had to take on that first responsibility first. Were you able to come to a place where you felt at peace with um, such a, a painful decision? 
um, oh, at the time, and for really a couple of years, I was deeply conflicted about it. Um, I mean, this was my brother. Uh, brothers are supposed to protect brothers. Um, I loved Ted. I, I know that he had loved me. Um, it was, I found myself in a situation where anything I did could lead to somebody's death. <laughs> I mean, what would it be like to wake up one day and realize somebody else had been killed and that we had been in a position to prevent that and failed to do anything? We'd have their blood on our hands. Uh, how do you live with that for the rest of your life? On the other hand, um, how do you live with turning in a brother who ends up being executed? How do you face your mother? Um, elderly woman who's worried for years about her son because of his estrangement from the family, because of his emotional problems, and um, see in her eyes that, you know, she knows that he's, he's being executed because you turned him in. That's, those weren't pleasant thoughts. How did your mother walk through all this? You know, I think we we had wanted to spare her um, for as long as possible. Again, even when we approached the FBI, we didn't feel certain that Ted was responsible. We hoped that they would find some way to rule him out as a suspect. Eventually, I got the call I'd been dreading. An agent that we'd been working closely with said, uh, David, we've done everything possible to rule out your brother as a suspect, unfortunately, he's moved to the top of our suspect list. And we're now at a point in the investigation where we need to speak with your mom. Do you think you could arrange an interview for us? So I remember going to her apartment. It was on a Saturday morning. She opened the door, and I, I saw her face change. So, so obviously my anguish must have been written all over me. And she said, David, something's wrong. You've got to tell me. What is it? And I said, yeah, Mom, I think you better sit down. Um, her first reaction was um, a mother's reaction, perhaps a mother's intuition, is it's Ted. Is it something about Ted? And I said, well, Mom, as far as I know, he's in good health, but I do have something very troubling to tell you. Um, she sat down in this little lazy boy chair where I always picture her reading or watching television. I was much too agitated to sit down. I was kind of pacing the room back and forth, trying to find some way to deliver this news painlessly, but there was no way to do that. Before long, I'm crying a little bit. Mom's just sitting in that chair, not saying a word, looking at me with this fixed look of horror on her face. And, um, and I'm realizing not many relationships are tested in quite this cruel way. Um, how could I be certain she'd even love me after I told her what I'd done? I kind of got to the end of what I had to say and said, Mom, I'm, I, you know, I think there's a chance Ted might be involved. Mom, I've even taken the step of calling the FBI, and they're currently investigating him. And uh, I'll always remember what Mom did next. I mean, it was just extraordinary, a real um, extraordinary gesture. She, she got up out of her chair, and she's a very small woman. I'm a little over six feet tall. She's a little under five feet tall. And she walked up to me, reached up her arms around my neck, and put a kiss on my cheek. And the first thing she said was, David, I can't imagine what you've been going through. Um, extraordinary to me that in this most terrible moment, her first concern was for my feelings. And then she said probably the most comforting things I, I could have heard. She said, uh, um, David, I know that you love Ted. I know that you wouldn't have done this unless you felt like you had to. Um, 
so in some ways, she's she's truly a kind of hero of this story. I, uh, you know, probably at that moment, half the weight of the world came off my shoulders. I realized I hadn't lost uh, my mother's love, and that she, Linda, and I were now in this together. And you know, after telling me what she she said, she uh, she she said, "Well, you know, David." I, I just can't imagine. I mean, Ted loves animals. He's never been violent. You know, um, I just don't think he's capable of doing these sorts of things. Maybe it's a good thing that you've contacted the authorities. They're going to investigate. They're going to find out he's innocent. And all of this will go away like a bad dream. Um, and I think that's she felt that very strongly at the outset. But the Kaczynski family's ordeal would not turn out to have been an illusion. David's courageous decision to tell the authorities that he suspected his brother Ted was the Unabomber would end the bombing spree of almost 18 years. And with his brother behind bars, David would embark on a campaign to abolish the death penalty. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Bill Wangren and Alan Mattis. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, The Unabomber's Brother, Part 1, is Humankind Program number 82. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.